Future Self Podcast, episode 23. I've always said success comes from being one of three things. First, better, or different. So if you're the first person there, then when it really, really kicks off, you've already established yourself and basically, no, you're turning people down. You're like, I don't have time. This is the Future Self Podcast. He's your host, Robert Ingalls. All right, welcome back to another shiny new episode of the Future Self Podcast. I am thrilled to have you here spending some of your valuable time with me. Now, if you have been listening for any time, you know that my goal with every episode is to provide you with as much value as possible in our short time together. And I do that by harvesting actionable advice from each guest. Advice that you can implement in your life today to get you from where you are to where you want to be. And believe me when I tell you that today's episode with William Wilson is going to put you on the fast track. I am humbled to be the messenger of such a compelling story. Now, before we dive into my podcast, I want to talk about your podcast. You know that podcast that you keep saying that you should start? You know you have a good story, and you know that people are going to listen. So my question for you is, what are you waiting for? Podcasting has taken the creative control away from the entertainment executives, and it's placed it back into the hands of the people. Today, all it takes to have a successful podcast is a unique story that resonates with your listeners. Today, it's the people that get to decide what entertainment is valuable and worthy. To get you started on your podcasting journey, I have partnered with Advent Coworking in Charlotte to present a live four-week podcasting course that is going to take you from your idea that you have today to launching your show on iTunes in just four weeks. To sign up for this, go to yourpod.pro and you'll be the first to receive news when this course goes live and the car opens up for purchase. Again, that is going to be yourpod.pro. All right, let's jump into today's show. William Wilson is a graduate of the University of Arkansas, a veteran of the United States Navy, and founder of Charlotte-based William Wilson Clothing, a private men's clothing company. William specializes in high-profile clients, and his client list includes professional athletes, celebrities, CEOs, and business executives. You may know him by his award-winning clothing on the red carpets, or from his charity golf tournament, the William Wilson Celebrity Invitational. I was thrilled to have him in the studio, and he did not disappoint. We dove deep on some serious issues, and it turned out to be a phenomenal episode. So let's jump into it. And the thing is, if you turn out and you get good at it, but if, you, if you're really good at something you hate, you still hate it. Still hate it. There's, I'm trying to think, there's a book, and I haven't read the whole thing yet. It's, I can't remember the name of it, but it talks about that same idea. It's like you have these different zones. Like you have your zone of incompetence, your zone of competence, your zone of <coughs> excellence, and your zone of genius. Mm-hmm. And it's like you can be in the zone of excellence with something, but if you don't love it, you're never going to be in the zone of genius with it. Like you're never going to operate at your maximum level of potential Right. in it. Like you can be good at it and you can be great at it, but you're never going to be amazing. Yeah. You know? And it'll always be work. Right. It's all. And that's the thing for me is like, I love it. Like tomorrow, like I've had two podcasts meeting this week already and I love it. Anyone will sit and talk to me about wanting to produce their own podcast. I'm like, hell yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's still in like a sales phase for some people because they just don't understand the value in it yet, but I don't care. I'm, I'm, I'm ahead of the curve and I'm happy to be there. Yeah. Well, the thing is, if you position yourself, you know, it's like a rain dance. It's all about timing. You, if you position yourself at the beginning, I've always said success comes from being one of three things. First, better, or different. So if you're the first person there, you know, and you're the person that 
Like, hey, go, go see Rob. Hey, go see Rob. I'm thinking about doing a podcast. Go see Rob. I'm doing... So when it really, really kicks off, you've already established yourself. And next thing you know, you're turning people down. You're like, I don't have time. Yeah. Or you just increase your rates. Yeah, that's the only thing there. You got to make sure you really keep them. Because the the downside of it is, as more and more people do this, or you know, doing podcasts, you know they can make the technology easier and easier to be able to do it. Sure, mixing and, boards get cheaper, mics get cheaper, and and I mean honestly, the technology is already there. Like yeah. right now, if you wanted to start a podcast, you could do it from your phone. You really can. Yeah, like they have apps where you can just start talking, and it'll mm-hmm. record the whole thing, and then it'll make it ready to publish on their app. Yeah, look at me hitting the mic. So yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. But that's the good thing right now. That's still where someone with professional experience has that edge is is the sound quality mm-hmm. and that's definitely the unique selling point right now is mm-hmm. you know when i let because i let listen people listen to different sound qualities when i talk to them if they're really interested in starting a show and we're talking nuts and bolts i'll i'll let them sit down and listen here's this recorded with this here's this recorded with this and you can hear the whole way from recording a podcast with a iPhone, which still, to be fair, if you've got a good message, I will listen to that message on that iPhone recording. But it better be a good message. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to suffer bad audio quality for, you know, a mediocre message. But then again, you know, with this, with as busy as I am in my life, if you're not sending something good my way in my ears, I'm out. You know, like there's too much content out there to suffer any mediocre content at all, which is good because it keeps people like striving to make better content, which I like. Uh, but right now, like if you were to listen to what we're recording right now and then listen to something recorded on, you know, let's say an iPhone, I mean, it's kind of the bottom, but it's drastic. Oh yeah. The depth and level of our voice. Like, I love that. That's one of the things I love about podcasting is your whole life. You hear your voice and you hate it. Mm -hmm. You hear your voice on like answering machines and you're like, you cringe. Yeah. But then the first time I recorded a podcast with good equipment and I listened back to it and I'm like, listen to that sexy man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, your voice is just so deep and full in a way that you've, you hear it in your head. Right. You sound a lot more like you hear yourself, and it's it's very pleasant. Mm-hmm. But what's weird, I, I take an acting class. Actually, I have a class tonight. Oh, that's cool. In Winston-Salem. Look at you. You're all over but, the place. Dude, I, life's short. Try stuff. You know, that's kind of Hell I, yes. That's kind of how I approach life. I mean, that's how I ended up doing this. Just tried it. Um, but, you know, my, my acting coach is like, you know, none of us ever really like our voice, and no one hears our voice the way we hear it. Our voice always sounds different than everyone else's. I've always felt like my entire life, like, oh, I have a horrible voice. Then I go talk to these coaches or I go speak somewhere or I do a podcast. And they're like, oh, I love your voice. It's just a calming, relaxing voice. I'm like, I hear the James Earl Joneses and the Bing Rames and the right. Sam Elliott's. And they're just like, or like um, in Tombstone. Right. Still got one arm to hold you with, darling. I'm like, right. if I had that kind of voice... Right. I'd probably just do phone sex videos. Phone sex. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, it's, it's kind of that thing where you're always comparing yourself to the person who's the absolute best at it. Mm-hmm. Like, if I could just look like Brad Pitt. <clears throat> oh, don't swing for the fences or anything, guy. Yeah. Hey, what The thing is, though, but why not? Somebody had to be, you know, who was the Brad Pitt before Brad Pitt? Oh, right. You know, like so, Cary Grant. I don't know. At least if you were to listen to my wife, she's very in love with that man. Yeah, you know, so, but <laughs> the thing is, if you shoot for there, like, I talk when I talk to these kids that want to be rappers or whatever. Like, of course, Jay Z is the standard. Of course, like that's cool to shoot for Jay Z, but if you land at Common, you're still doing okay. Yeah, honestly, I think I'd rather land at Common. Like, oh, well, I, I just like Common's presence. Like when mm-hmm. he's acting, like he just he commands the oh, screen. Yeah. Like that's I don't know. I just I, I watched the show with him and I just really really liked him. What was that show uh, where they were out and like building a railroad? 
Oh, um, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But I can't think of the name. Yeah, of that's. It. I didn't really know him before that, and mm-hmm. uh, and then I saw him, and I'm like, that guy's good. <laughs> yeah, <you laughs> but know, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, you know, they may be at two totally different points, but Common can go eat anywhere Jay Z can eat. Yeah. He can live anywhere Jay Z can live, but he can go places that Jay Z can't go anymore. Right. Yeah, Jay Z's kind of. He's at a point now where he's in a box. Yeah, you know, he, he's, he, he's a prisoner of his own success. Yeah, there's nowhere in the world he can go where people aren't like, I know you. You know, exactly. and I can I, I imagine that would be pretty tiring. I don't I think I I don't think I'd respond well to that either. I think I would definitely be like the Sean Penn of famous people if I was famous. I would constantly <laughs> be like throwing shit at people. Like I would just get so ornery with people up in my business all the time. Like snake trying to take pictures of me while I'm at the beach mm-hmm. with my daughter. I'm like somebody's gonna die. Yeah, you, you can't turn it off. But I mean, like with the success I've had, I'm you know, obviously I'm nowhere in that level at all. But I did a blog post one time. I said, Can you afford the fame you're chasing? Because people don't realize the more popular you get, the more of a fishbowl your life becomes and everyone's watching you. And now you walk into a room where you don't know anybody, but everybody knows you. Yeah. And you may be at the supermarket. You may be at the line. You know, if you cut somebody off in traffic, somebody saw you. Or if you cut in line in front of someone or you just got into some kind of verbal exchange, it doesn't even have to be a bad one. Someone's going to see it. They're going to post something about it on social media. And now suddenly your butthole. Right. That's gonna be that's gonna be the the story they tell everyone for the rest of their life when your name comes up. Mm-hmm. So you have to be on all the time, even when you don't want to be. Yeah, I heard Jay Leno in an interview say something similar to that because he's historically known as like a nice guy. Mm-hmm. Like he's just he's gotten that reputation. Like him and Tom Hanks just have mm-hmm. this reputation as like being really nice every time you meet him. And they asked him about that and they were like, How how are you able to cultivate that? There has to be people that just get on your nerves. And he said he's like, I understood that coming in. He's like, I understood coming in that if I was going to be, because he started out doing Carson, and then he mm-hmm. took over Carson like when Carson was out. Yeah. He would just like come in, and he's like, I knew where I was going. Mm-hmm. And and he's like, and I accepted that. And he's like, he said that thing. He's like, when people meet you, that's the one time they're probably ever going to meet you. Yep. And if you give them a bad experience in that moment, they're going to tell everyone for the rest of their life about that bad experience. And now you're you're the butthole. <laughs> yep, forever. Forever. 40 years from now, you're still a butthole no matter how much right. good stuff you did. And after listening to that, I was like, I don't want that level of fame. Yeah. Like- you know, <laughs> I was walking down the street. Um, the AKAs had like their national convention in Charlotte. And they brought Roland Martin in to um, be like their guest guy for their golf tournament, like the celebrity for their golf tournament. And uh, we're walking down the street. We're trying to have a conversation. But every two seconds, because, I mean, there's tens of thousands of women that came down, you know, for the <laughs> convention. And, you know, every two seconds, he's waving or, hey, how you doing? Or stop to take a picture. And like we literally could not have a conversation until we got back to the hotel. And I said, does that ever get old? He said, hey, without me doing that, they don't watch and I can't be me. Right. None of it happens. Yeah. He said, if I don't feel like dealing with people, I just don't leave the house. But that's but you signed up as part of the gig. You don't get the checks without getting this part of it. Oh, I like that. This is what it is. Yeah, I want to be the guy behind the camera for the most part. You know, yeah. I like uh, my idea. I've talked to my wife about this a lot because we think big as well. We shoot for the stars. Like, what is the big goal you want? And and, and I kind of uh, subscribe to the idea of like you know the one thousand true fans. Have you mm-hmm. ever heard of that? Mm-mm. So it's a blog post. I think that's where it started. And and the idea is, you know, you don't have to be Jay-Z mm-hmm. to get everything you want out of life. It's kind of the same idea about you saying common. Yeah. You can have your thousand true fans. And, mm-hmm. and if you collect those people who are rabid about what you do 
and listen to your show every day and buy your products when you sell them, take your courses when you offer them, that is all you will ever need to be as successful as you want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously I'd like to make it maybe tick past a thousand. Right. But when you look at the numbers, if you're producing quality content and you're actually affecting people's lives in a positive way and you're charging a market rate to do that, that's all you need. Mm-hmm. And that really helped me wrap my head around like success. Like you don't need to be out there. You don't need 7 million people to buy your album right. in order to have that good life, have that life. You know, well, obviously Common's got a better life than me, but right. uh, but to have that common life, mm-hmm. to have that life where you can still live it and you don't have concerns. Like there's, it's not either the bottom or the top. There's a right. lot of pie right in the middle. It really is. And that's where most of it is. And I call it the, the, you have 25 pennies or a quarter. You know, they're both the same value as far as monetary value. But 25 pennies takes up a lot of space in your pocket. You can't really do anything with it. There's no machine you could put a penny in. You can't do anything with it. You're just going to piss off the clerk when you drop it on the counter. <laughs> yeah, a quarter. You could use a quarter. You know, when they used to have pay phones and a pay phone, you could use it in a vending machine. You could... You know, flip a when they flip a coin, it's always a quarter. You know, it has a value. Well, I walk around with twenty five pennies. It's the same thing. Well, I have twenty five people in your life that really have no value individually. Well, you can just have one person that's worth a quarter, and it makes your life so much simpler. Damn, that was strong. Like I didn't even see us go in there, and you told me that. I was like, Ooh, that's good. <laughs> I like that a lot, though. Like you know, surround yourself with people that matter and do things that matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like that. <clears throat> twenty five cents. I'm going to use that. I'll oh, quote you. Free. Did you come from somewhere else? Is that you? Oh, it's mine. I love it. It's good. It's good. Um, so, you know, we kind of know each other in the last couple of years. And mm-hmm. since I've known you, you've been making, you've been a tailor or, you know, mm-hmm. a, uh, um, a clothier. Am I saying that name right? Clothier. Yeah, it works. I like it. It just yeah. sounds very uh, um, high fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, that's what you've been doing. Um, I've talked to you a few times. You, you know, I know you kind of have a pretty compelling backstory. So let's circle back there. You know, I know that you, you went to the University of Arkansas, right? I am a Razorback. From Arkansas. hmm Right. Um, at what point in your life was there a point where you were like, I want to work for myself? I want to do something uh, along those lines? Like, was it an itch you had to scratch, or was it just a series of life decisions that led to it? I think just I think it was just a series of circumstances that happened that caused life decisions that turned into it. But I think really when I look back at my life, I've always been an entrepreneur. You know, when I was in the third grade, I would go buy a dollar's worth of candy, break it all up and I'd sell it and make five bucks off of it. I was in the third grade making 20, making 25 bucks a week. That's a strong ROI, you know, killing it, turning a dollar into five. Yeah. I'd buy a pack of annihilators though. Maybe coming like in a pack of five and I'd break them up and I sell them for 25 cents a piece to the kids. You know, so I've always done that when I was in the Navy, not my proudest moment. We all have. I, them I remember. <laughs> I, I remember. I was in Newport News, and we were stationed in the shipyard. I was on a submarine. They were still building it, but we had, used to have to pass this adult bookstore on the way to the barracks. So what I started doing when we started going to sea, I would go by that store, and they would have this big bin full of like I guess the old sex videos that they rented they were out of circulation whatever they having like this big box for like five ten bucks and i'd buy like 10 of them and i'd rent them we were out to sea rent them i love it you weren't even selling them to people you were like no no no, we're gonna it's recurring income yeah so i'm renting porn on you know or we we just i'm like 
my God, what was I doing? No, I but love I, it. But I was making a ton of money doing the, that. I mean, you know, there's there was a strong market there. You saw it and you yeah. know, capitalized. Yeah, and I'm I was um guys would we go out to see it, I would loan like a hundred for hundred and fifty or two hundred for two fifty or whatever. And I would tell them, Hey, I get my money first. Right. Don't make me break your legs. <laughs> I'm like, you, payday come, you see me first, but I'll never rent to you again. I never um loan to you again. So I always got my money. I went a year without cashing a check. This one we used to used to get checks. I had to go to naval dispersing and get checks reissued because they were only good for six months. Right. So I had to get them reissued because I had never cashed them. I had so much cash coming in on payday, I never had to worry about cashing checks. Nice. That's a good problem to have. That, uh, rental business was doing it, you know, yeah, loan well, sharking. Yeah, the the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the the slough fund was better. You know, that was <laughs> I had much more customers there. You know, because guys, we've been at sea for three or four weeks or. A month, maybe two months. They can't wait to go drink, party. They hit the strip clubs, all that stuff. And I don't drink. I don't go to strip clubs. That's not my thing. Right. So, or I would like take people's duty. So whoever had duty, like, like, have to stand, watch day on the boat. Like that first night, I'm like, hey, we normally got in about four o'clock in the afternoon. So I'm like, hey, I'll take your duty. I'll stay in. I'll take your duty for a hundred bucks. They couldn't wait to get out Dude, for a hundred bucks, 200 bucks, depending on how long we've been out. And, I would say, look, I'll take your duty. That way they can, they got a chance to check out the land, find out where to go, where not to go. They can scout everything out. And then they come back, oh man, you got to go here, you got to go here. So now I've got 200 bucks in my pocket or 100 bucks in my pocket. I don't drink, so all I'm going to do is buy, you know, at the time, soda or lemonade or tea. So my bill is going to be, what, 10 bucks with tip? And you can tip strong and still not feel like you spent that much money. Exactly. So other than that, and eating, and maybe if there's a cover to get in, that's all I'm going to spend. So I'm not even going to spend that 100 bucks. So once again, I'm not even spending my money yet. And then two, if we're going to be in for a week or so, two or three days into it, because they burned through their money so quick, now they're back they for need more. cash. <laughs> Come to daddy. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. So I think I've always been an entrepreneur, but my goal, what, what was weird growing up, I wanted a corporate job. That's what you I'm, wanted? That was your vision? Yeah, I'm like, I want to wear a suit and tie to work every day, and I want to make $100,000, and I want to have a big view from my office. I want to I want to be that J.R. Ewing, you know, Blake Carrington type guy I saw on Dallas and um, Knox Landing and Dynasty, those kind of deals. Like, I wanted that kind of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I, I mean, I had a similar thing, too. Like, I remember seeing Gordon Gecko, and, and for all yeah. of his flaws... <clears throat> I was like, that seems like a nice life, but they don't show you all the, you know, the terrible parts. Well, I guess they kind of do when he, you know, gets in trouble. But at the same yeah. time, you're like, man, that looks glamorous, it having does. drivers and, you know, big offices and suits mm-hmm. and yeah. So yeah. I certainly thought felt felt that was glamorous as well. Yeah, who didn't want to be Jr. You know? Yeah. I mean, he was just he was he was he was his own man. He's making tons of money and could do what he wanted to do and just had power. He walked in the room and he commanded respect. And at the end of the day, that's what we all want. We all want respect. Sure. So, yeah, that's how it kind of happened. And so it's always kind of been that way. But just different series of circumstances has led to me, you know, going out on my own. So when you're you're in the Navy and you get out, do you still mm-hmm. have this vision of uh, of that corporate office? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. So what's your um, next step? Um, well, the first job I got when I got out of the Navy, I sold cars in Virginia. I right. sold Nissans. It's a good a way company. to learn sales. Yeah, I I was really good at it. It was kind of like we talked about earlier. I was really good at it, but I hated it. It's a hundred degrees outside. You got a suit on, or you know, a 
whatever, and you get in this hundred degree car with these people you ride around. By the time the AC finally kicks in good, you get back to the dealership and they want to hop in another one. Right. So you spend two or three hours walking around these people just annoying you to death. Then they go, Oh, let me go home and think about it. You know, like you said this is what you wanted, I showed you what you wanted, what's sure. the deal? And then they, you call them back, you know, a couple of days later, and they went someplace else and bought a car for two hundred bucks less. Right, and and well, I mean, the car industry. I mean, it's it seems like it's starting to change, but that is an industry that needed revamping bad. Oh yeah, just I mean, it was just such a dog and pony show all the time. You know, oh, well, and everyone feels like, oh, well, I'm going to try to talk them down, and then they feel like they got to talk them down, and then the internet's changed that game where mm-hmm. it's like this is the price, and we can't do much with it, but people don't realize that yet. And and so it's uh they're having a rough go out there, but yeah. hopefully I, Tesla really changed that market because Tesla doesn't ha- haggle like stickers to sticker. Mm-hmm. Same way was it the other big car CarMax is mm-hmm. that them? Well, that's how we were. We were in, we yeah. were the price on the, the on the car was the price on the car. Oh, that's, yeah, I like that. So that was cool. But again, other places still were right. So they may give you two or three hundred or a thousand dollars off. They would make it up make up for it in the F and I office, but. Right. You felt like you walked away thinking you had a better deal. But, you know, it was what it was. But I just felt like a groupie all the time because you're hanging out by the door. And if someone pulls up, you know, you're just almost running out to go meet him before the next guy does. And that's just not a way I want to live life. Yeah. So, but I did that for a while. And I came, I moved down to Charlotte. My first job, I was managing a Waffle House. You first got to Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Nice. I, I was managing that Waffle House in Pineville on Highway 51. Yeah, I know where that is. Mm-hmm. And I was I was still a trainee. The manager actually quit, took a job with Budweiser as a route driving a truck um, locally in their route. So I ended up having to take over. I took it from the number forty two store to the number two store as a trainee because I just used the principles I knew from the military, just common sense principles. But they wanted me to start cooking, and I'm like, "You hired me to manage, not cook. I don't want to cook." I'm like, "I am not going to cook." And I left there, and I worked for MetLife. I mean, I did a number of other things, just really kind of finding my way. And trying to figure out the civilian world. You know, I went from high school, six days later, I'm in the Navy. And I went to college while I was in the Navy. So I literally had never not been in a structured environment. I didn't know about insurance. I didn't know what a HMO or PPO was because I had a military ID. I got sick. I just went to medical. Right. If my tooth hurt, I just went to dental. And then when I was done, I just went to work. So... It's a lot of a lot of the adult world uh, was already kind of figured out and taken care of. Yeah, I was basically you know a twenty some year old high school graduate <laughs> with a college degree. Sure, because all I knew was I knew about the civilian civilian world. I really didn't know much more than I did coming out of high school about the civilian world. I mean, I, obviously, I had grown and matured from my naval experience, but I was just, I wouldn't, I say I was ill-equipped. I just had a different skill set. It took me a while to figure out how to acclimate that skill set. So I did that and worked at MetLife and some other things. And I got a job with a construction company when I was doing some temp stuff. I got a job with a construction company, did that for a while. And, you know, 9-11 happened. Right. You know, I was one of the last ones hired. So I was one of the first ones they let go when the so, market crashed after 9-11. So was that like actual construction, swinging the hammer? No, I was still in management for okay. um, John Wheeler Homes. I was a I was a construction manager. Okay, good. Well, I was just thinking of my own experience. I spent two weeks. Uh, I really needed some cash at one point when I was between jobs, and I spent two weeks doing construction. You know, mm-hmm. I'd like to swing the hammer more, but it was mostly more grunt work, carrying shingles up ladders and things like that. But mm-hmm. after that two weeks, I was like done with that. Oh yeah, that's All right. yeah. When I walk by and watch those guys working, I'm like a lot of respect. Because I know what that's like, and I don't know how they do it every day. Because all I wanted to do is go home, take a shower, go to bed. 
And then by the time I was like ready to wake up, it's time to go to work again. Yeah. You don't have time to do anything else, <laughs> yeah. man. You can see a guy climbing up. You know what it's like to climb that ladder with a bundle of shingles on your shoulder. It's brutal. That's grown man work. <laughs> yeah. I've done it. I have no desire to ever do it again. But if I had to, I would. I won't starve to not do it. Oh, absolutely. But I did that, man. Like I said, the 9-11 happened. First one out. But I had this company that was trying to get me to come work with them. They were a framing company. So I went to work for them. I was making good money. Kind of coming over as I want to. I started working in NASCAR at the time. So it allowed me to do both. And I took the company from a... I want to say a million dollar company to like a four million dollar company in a year because I changed the way they structured. I'm like, why you got these employees? Subcontract them out so you're not killing yourself in the winter. You're killing it in the summer. In the wintertime, you're killing yourself. You're paying, have to pay the taxes, insurance. You know, 1099 all these guys. That way, in the wintertime, when it's slow, you don't have anything going on, they're free to go find other work too. Right. So it all worked out. They started making good money. The owner of the company started doing some things he didn't need to do. I kind of saw the writing on the wall. So I said, I'm going to start my own company. I mean, I was already, I was one setting up the, I was one finding the work. I was one interacting with the framers. I was doing everything anyway. So when I called my, and I had no customers at all because I'd been working for this company. So when I called all my people to tell them I was going to be leaving, they said, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to start my own. I said, I'm not trying to snatch you from them. And they all said, William, you're the only person at your company we've ever talked to. Who's coming with me? <laughs> exactly. They said, are your framers going to come work with you? So I said, yeah, all my, the same guys be working with me because no one in my company had ever talked to them either. Right. So they never talked to the customer. They never talked to the employees. They only talked, they only talked to me because I was the liaison. They said, William, to us, it's just a name on the check. We know what we get with you. We know what work we get with your guys. We fill out, fill out a, a W-9. We change the name on the check. And we just keep it moving. So is this your first moment where you're considering, you know, being the one who's responsible for generating all the income? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, kind of the proverbial name on the door? Yep. yep. Was there any was there any fear involved in that decision? Oh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. That's, I was that's nervous one of the, as could be. I always ask that question because I, you know, I mentor a lot of young people. And that's one of the things that they always tell me is like, I'm just too scared to make that jump. Like, they see people who are successful and and they think well that person must have a unique quality and and they're always scared to to step out of that comfort zone even if it's a job they hate mm-hmm. they're scared to step out and, and try to do something they like so that's I always like to hear that perspective from other people who actually did it yeah i mean i was horrified because i knew i knew the process is part of it i knew what i was supposed to see but i wasn't a good framer fortunately one of the guys that one of our crews a guy named gabriel Gabriel loved framing. Gabriel didn't want to deal with all the selling stuff. So we partnered together. And we called our company Archimex. I was from Arkansas and he was from Mexico. And most of my guys were from Mexico. They were all legal. I like that. And I wanted them to know, I wanted them to feel like a part of the company. So I put their name in the company because it was important for them to know they weren't just, you know, because you know how we treat immigrants here. Sure. I mean, and it was no better back then in 2003. We didn't treat them any better then. And... I remember I went to a meeting one time. I walk out of a $2 million deal. And um, so we're talking. And this guy said, so Archimex, how'd you come up with the name Archimex? I said, well, I'm from Arkansas. My, most of my guys from Mexico, blah, blah, blah. He goes, well, you could have just called it Razorbacks and Wetbacks. Whoa. Yeah. And I'm in the room. I'm the only black guy in the room. Everybody else, good old Southern North Carolina white guys. And they all, so it's probably six of us in the room. 
You know, three of them start laughing. The other two just really don't say anything. I close my notebook. I grab my jacket. I said, William, where are you going? I said, I'm leaving. I said, these guys, I said, I can't do what I do without them. They are more important than I am. I said, these guys climb up ladders. If I ask them to do anything, they do it because they know I have their back. I said, I will not let you disrespect them like that. You will not. You can find someone else to frame your houses. I don't need to do the work. He's like, well, come on. I said, they said, well, I didn't say anything. I said, but you didn't, that's the thing. You didn't say anything. This is your company. You didn't stop any of your guys. You didn't take a stand. I said, a person that would call a white guy or would call a Hispanic, you know, a wetback to my face would call me a nigga behind my back. It's not that far of a stretch. Right. It speaks to the culture and the company that no one. Exactly. You know, that it was just an accepted thing to say out loud. Yeah. And for the for that first person to say it, to feel so comfortable to be able to say it, let's me know the kind of things he's been able to say forever. Right. And I, I walked out the room. And my guy was like, he said, you know, my, my buddy Gabriel's going, so how'd it go? And I told him what happened. He said, you walked away from it? I said, yeah. I said, I will do it every time. I said, I will close the doors to this company before I allow you to be disrespected. And, and, and not to interrupt, but that speaks to, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about when I was preparing for the interview. It, it speaks to that, that principled nature that you so clearly have. You know, you're, you're pretty vocal in person and on social media about you know current events what mm-hmm. your take on those current events is mm-hmm. and and it's clear that you're not trying to appease anybody either because you know you, you have a very unique view that comes from your worldview mm-hmm. and you're very happy to espouse it and mm-hmm. and sometimes sometimes it makes people a little upset i think you do a great job of interacting with those people when they are upset mm-hmm. that was one of the things i i wanted to ask you is so many people when they become public and they have a public persona, shy away from that. They, mm-hmm. they, they don't want to ruffle feathers. But I, I watch you be very vocal. But you also somehow have seemed to be able to do that without alienating people that might even disagree with you. Well, because everyone has their own truth. And their truth is based on our experiences. You no, know, you and I are friends, but our lives, our experiences are different. Sure. I walk into a room, I see one thing. You walk into a room, you see another. It doesn't make what I see better or worse than what you see. Or any less true. Right. You know, so, but I can learn from how you see the world and you can learn from how I see the world and together it makes the world better. But if I just immediately shut down what you think because you don't see what I think, we just can be further divided. We don't have to always agree, but what I've found, no matter how heated the argument Unless somebody's just being a fool and just being contentious just for the sake of being an antagonist, usually 70 to 80% of the stuff they agree on. It's the outliers that they don't agree on. Yeah, they tend to focus on the things they don't. All right. So if I, so if you and I have a conversation and I disagree with something, but when I listen to you, I can say, you know, I agree with that part and I see what you're saying there. You're, I totally, I'm with you 100% on there. But this is where I differ in that. Now, my differing may come from the way I'm treated in a situation. You may walk into a room, you walk to a room full of white guys, it may not be nothing to you. You walk to a room full of black guys, you would naturally feel, not saying you would be uncomfortable or whatever, but you would feel different because you would be the one person in the room. Sure. It's human nature. That doesn't make you not like black people. If I walk to a room and I'm the only man in a room full of black women, I'm already... I'm aware of that. I, I'm not. That doesn't sound like a terrible place. It 
Hey, depending on what your position is on something, it can be a very bad place. Fair enough. <laughs> if, if we're talking about high level issues, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, depending, it all depends on what it is. You'd be amazed what triggers different people off, you know, because people have their own experiences and their own pain points. Something that may not necessarily hurt me may devastate you. I'm, I'm sure there are things you look at and go, oh, that's not that big a deal. But your wife is like, like it really upset her. Sure. That's her truth. That's her pain point. Now, she can deal with you disagreeing with her, but she cannot deal with you ignoring her pain. Yeah, trying to trivialize it. Yeah, no, don't minimize someone just because it's not important to you. I remember when I was in elementary school, and I don't know why this stuck in my head, but it always did. It had a picture of an ant and an elephant. And the ants look at the elephant, and he says, I'm as big in my world as you are in yours. And that always stuck with me. So when I interact with people on social media... Because I'm not a partisan. I'm, not a, I'm an independent. I'm not a Democrat or a Republican. I'm coming from a position of right or wrong. Just period. Democrats can be right. They can be wrong. Republicans can be right. They can be wrong. If something is wrong, I'm going to point out wrong. I'm going to point at my position on it. And I'm going to give you um, clarifying points to why I said what I said. Now, you can disagree with it. And I will listen to why you disagree with it. Now, if you just go, oh, that's just some the thing I always get. Oh, here comes some. The left always this, or right. the liberal this, this, this. When I start doing that, I think to myself, you have to be a very sad, minuscule person that your whole world is divided into two sides. Yeah, and they, and they well, people like to shut down arguments and and feel that they have the high ground by being like, oh, well, you just fit in this box and you're just you know parroting these things that you've heard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's where a lot of arguments end up. It's the ability to feel like you can hold the high ground without actually having to engage in a real conversation. Yeah, and I'm like, okay, well, tell me, put, put me there. Say, so one, I'm not a leftist. I voted for Obama and I voted for Bush. I voted for Pat McCroy the first time. I listen, I just, I'm a firm believer if you make up your mind before hearing both sides of an argument, you're a fool and you set yourself up for failure. Absolutely. Well, and, and just, I think a lot of us voted for Pat McCrory the first time. Yeah. <laughs> I will not make the mistake again because he cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And, and my thing is, you know, during that part of it, you know, a lot of people are like, well, you know, he, he was in a, he had a filibuster proof you know, thing and he had a veto proof majority. And my thing is, I don't care if he would have lost, just put up the fight. Yeah. Do the right thing. Yeah. If you. If you got if you vetoed and they overrode your veto every time, but you stood for your principle, I'd have voted for him again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, do what you said you were going to do. Stick to it. That's it. Fight for the people who need fighting for. You know, I'm a I'm a business owner. At the end of the day, once we cut through all the partisan nonsense and all this, I'm going to be okay regardless. Because DC is full of two things: lawyers and small business owners. No matter what tax they create, they're going to write themselves a loophole. Sure. And as a, as a business owner, I'm going to have that loophole. I love getting tax breaks as much as the next person. But at some point, your conscience has to cut in. You know, I love getting the tax break, but I don't need to go buy another three, four, five, ten thousand $10,000 watch. So somebody else got to decide between Similac for their baby and gas for their car. Yeah. I, there's something invariably wrong with that. We're only on this planet. I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian, so I believe you're only on this planet for so long. You got to answer for the things you do at a later date. So I just think, you know, my, my sister doesn't own a company. You know, a lot of my friends don't own companies. So my tax breaks come at their expense. And that's not okay. That's a good way to look at it, though. I mean, you're not, m- most people don't think past, you know, the end of their own nose. And that's not to say they don't think about the world around them, but in that specific situation, 
I've never, I've never once considered that. I've never once considered where my tax breaks are, uh, are being made up. Yeah. Um, you know, my general consideration is damn, I pay too much tax. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, um, and that's good. It's, it's good to reframe that and, and hear it from that way because that's one of the things we try to do as well is remember we have it really, really well. Yeah. If you, um, if you pay, if you pay a lot of taxes, I mean, you made a lot of money. Right. I mean, it's just there's, maybe stop spending so much of it so you don't feel so tight. Yeah. You know, that's just the thing to it. And, and my thought is don't give me as much, feel free. Take my tax breaks. Fine. If you can take my tax breaks and give the the average American more money, you know what that does? They're going to go out and spend more money. So now I have a bigger customer base that's going to turn and turn, going to give me more money anyway. Yeah. So now instead of having a thousand people, I have 1,500. Yeah. As a customer base, potential customer base. And another 250 that as they get raises would come into that point. So I'm still going to win at the end, except we all win together yeah. instead of just a few people winning. Bringing up all the boats. Yeah. Yeah. I let my wife and I talk about that a lot. We talk about societal issues and, and, and that's our, you know, that's kind of the main goal is, is to bring to, you know, the tide brings everyone up. It does. You know? Yeah. Wa- the water doesn't care what color the boat is. Yeah. They, I like that. I've never it, heard that. And it doesn't care who made the boat. It's just there. If you're a piece of driftwood or your boat, you're still going to come up. You know, that's the thing that gets me. But somehow as a society, and it's gotten worse in the last year or so because there's a, a new group of people that feel empowered. But now we feel we can tell other people what they should be upset about. Yeah. Who am I to tell you what's supposed to upset you? But for somehow we've become a society where if I upset you or I offend you, instead of me saying, you know what? I didn't mean to. I apologize. You know what I do? I insult you for being offended. Right. You know, oh, you're just a soft baked cookie. Yeah, you're thin skin. Yeah, thin skin. Toughen up. You know, grow a pair. Yeah. All of a sudden, I minimize you. You know, as a kid, I was taught if you hurt somebody, you offend somebody, apologize. Yeah. I, uh, one of the things we always heard growing up, and it, it didn't resonate with me then, and it just, it, 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 it it troubles me now is sticks and stones may break my bones, but yeah. words will never hurt me. Mm-hmm. You know, you were told that when someone would be, would be awful to you. And, and if you internalize that type of idea, it's like, well, it doesn't matter what I say to someone cause it's not going to hurt them anyway. Mm-hmm. And that is so troubling because I mean, most of us, when we act out, most of us are acting out from baggage we've been carrying around for decades. We really do. From the words that were told to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I'm with you there. Like, And that's one of the things that I think about a lot is when I say something to someone, they may never forget it. Yeah, they won't. People never forget when you hurt them. Yeah. They will never forget. Especially when you – because you can make someone angry. I mean, my friends make me angry. I make them angry. And we move on from it two minutes later. But hurt just hits you deeper. Yeah. Like a hurt cuts you. Absolutely. And, and then if you don't care, you know, if, if you minimize that person's hurt and mm-hmm. act like, oh, well, I didn't mean it, so it doesn't matter. Well, it doesn't matter if you meant it. What matters is taking that two seconds to say, that's not how I was trying to come at you. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know? And then, and then it's then done. It's done. Yeah. But if you don't, like I had a, I, I did a post the other, the other day and it was uh, the, the, the basis of the post was inspired by something my best friend said. And when I did the post, because he said, be positive, I said, here's what I'm positive about in the world. <laughs> I said, I'm positive this is going to get bad. Here, I'm positive this, this, I went this whole thing like I do. And he posted, he said, this is very, he said, this is very offensive, blah, 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 blah. I was offended. You know what? I didn't call him and say, I'm sorry. I didn't send him a private message and said, I'm sorry. 
I replied to his comment and said, I'm sorry. I said, it wasn't meant to be disrespectful. I apologize. And I deleted his part from there. I said, I meant everything I said. But I'm sorry that I offended you in the saying. So right. I took his name from it. And it's done. And now afterwards, I called him. I said, hey, I'll te- actually, I texted him. I said, I'm sorry to me. He said, no, we're fine. He said, he said, dude, I said, nothing you're ever going to post on Facebook like this is ever going to upset me, affect our friendship. Which I knew that, but it still needed to be done there, too. You know, yeah. The personal interaction. Absolutely. But the problem is we're just so busy. We want, I used to think people wanted truth. They don't want truth. They want affirmation. People want to be affirmed that what they believe is right. Yeah. And they and, don't want to be challenged. And social media has helped out a lot in that respect because they've been able to create this echo chamber that they can curate that when they have a belief, they go find someone who's like, hell yeah. And they're like, yeah, I knew it. Yeah. You cannot make a statement stupid enough to not and to not find someone to agree with you. To true that. Can you get yeah. lost on YouTube after a while and you're like, what is happening? Yeah, it is. <laughs> you can, you, I could walk outside and say this. I could say, I think... Um, I think Donald Trump had sex with a spider monkey. <laughs> and I get 50 people that will agree with me just off the bat if I don't leave Charlotte. <laughs> and I'm like, that's the stupidest thing ever. But but you're right. We've been able to, social media allows us to build complete virtual worlds of people that look, think, act, pray, love, and worship like us. And because of that, we say something stupid and you got, like I said, your echo chamber, all these people going, yeah, I'm with you, 100%. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. You start to believe your own nonsense. And then when someone steps out and challenges your nonsense, you're like, you're just, ah. You mm-hmm. know, and especially if all your friends agree with you because they're about to pile on top of that person with you. Mm-hmm. And, and instead of listening and, and trying to absorb that different idea, you just shut it down. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, no one, no one grows Mm-mm. by being around people that are just like them. Exactly. And that's why when you see me interact with people, especially ones that come angry and this, that, and the other, as long as they're respectful, I can deal with it. And if you notice, the the easy way to disarm a snake is you ain't got to kill the snake, just break the teeth. I like you that. You know, just because the snake without the fangs is just a worm. <laughs> so what I do at that point, you know, they were like, blah, 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 blah. I say, you know, I see what you're saying there. I agree with you on that part of it. They never saw that coming. Yeah. In their mind, because I didn't agree with them, I'm either a leftist or I'm a Republican. Right. You know, I'm one of the two. I get, I catch it from both sides. Oh yeah, me too. Well, I mean, that's the that's the problem with being a moderate who makes up their mind based on each unique situation mm-hmm. is that in any given moment, someone's calling you one side or the other. Yeah, and but usually what tends to happen, I say eighty to ninety percent of the time, by the time we're done, we're laughing about something else. That's good, but I think that speaks to your approach to it because that's not easy, and you don't see it frequently. But, but we don't see it frequently because everyone, again, everyone's so busy trying to be right. and want to make sure they get hurt. So they talk over people. Yeah. I'm, I'm not interested in, in in changing the mind of the whole world. I, I just, I'm not, I don't want to be Don Quixote fighting windmills with a toothbrush. <laughs> it is. Some battles just aren't worth winning. But I also know that there are kids. There are people that watch me. There are other entrepreneurs that watch how I interact. And if they can see me interact with people, because I get people all the time that are, man, Will, you my hero. I don't know how you deal with these people. How can you sit there? How do you have the patience to deal with this? How do you this? And yeah, sometimes I'm on the other end of the computer going, oh, this stupid mother. <laughs> Thankfully, you can get up and walk away for a second, yeah. you know, before responding. That's the good thing about social media is you don't, you know, if they were saying that to your face, you'd be like, I hate you. <laughs> but the thing is that most of them wouldn't have the courage to say it to you. Sure. Face. And you're right about that. That's it. There's a lot. There's a lot of thumb gangsters. Yeah. 
You know, a lot of these guys that they're, they're internet bad boys, you know, but they see you in the face. I had people that talk trash to me on social media and then they meet me and they all on my face want to take pictures and all this other stuff. Yeah. Which is, no, and that's cool, but it gives us, again, it gives us a chance to interact with them. Now, I could be, let's go, man, I ain't, I ain't taking a picture with you. Man, the way you talk all this trash, blah, blah, blah. But we'll talk, we'll interact, and we'll have a conversation there. And from that point on, or sometimes shortly after that, our interactions on social media are different. Yeah. Or I'll get someone that'll hit me up on social media that say, man, Will, you know, when you, I first started reading your stuff, I would get so mad I would this. But every time you made a point, you gave me a different way of looking at it. I didn't always agree with you, but at least you gave me a different way of looking at it. And over time, I've softened some of my senses on some things. And that's that, changed. That's really good. And, you know, it's one of the things I think about is it definitely takes strong people to change hearts and minds. Because if if you don't have that strength to absorb and and let things go, then you wouldn't have been able to be nice to that person and have an interaction and break down that wall that allowed them to soften their stance. Mm -hmm. And one of the things people, you hear it all the time, is nobody ever changed their mind over a Facebook argument. And and I disagree with that. And and not just about Facebook, but an argument Mm -hmm. in general. Uh, Because I grew up uh, very, uh, very, very conservative. And not to say I'm very, very liberal now, but very, very conservative. The things are the way they are. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if something happened... This is how you feel about it, and and so it took me more than a couple of decades to sh- you know to kind of figure out who I was and how I felt about the world. Right. But there was one situation on election night in two thousand, mm-hmm. and a friend of a friend was at our house, and she was um, like she was definitely a hippie you know hippie girl like she was really nice and cool, but she was very strongly liberal, and and I just thought she was silly. All these things were so crunchy that she was saying, and. And I just, I kind of wrote her off and I'm like, this girl is crazy. Uh, But then years later, as I'm kind of finding myself and I'm coming to some really hard truths that were hard for me to overcome because they conflicted with the things that I thought I always knew. Mm -hmm. And and her voice was in my head saying these things. You know, eight years later, I am changing fundamental beliefs from my life. And I've got this girl from eight years ago in my head helping me do that. You know, so anybody who says that you're not changing minds is too short-sighted mm-hmm. like you know when you talk to someone and you give them your truth that truth stays with them and and they it can does. use it as they need to along the journey of their life mm-hmm. so yeah as long as they come to you I mean, you've got you know those things you got catch more flies or honey than vinegar sure and I mean, but you, that didn't make a lot of sense to me as a kid like you know it's one either. of the things that you hear so much and then you get older and you're like oh shit i know what that means now yeah i'm like why do i want to catch flies <laughs> you know, it's one of those why are you old people saying weird shit all the time yeah you know I've, I've always i'm a i'm a pragmatist now i don't make emotional decisions that's one of my strengths and one of my weaknesses i make very few emotional decisions but you're right you know you've got to be able to Sometimes it just takes a minute to just listen. The old saying, you know, you got two ears and one mouth for a reason. Yeah. I listen. Even when I disagree, I listen. But I also know delivery is everything. You know, delivery is everything. When you talk to your wife, you can tell her one thing, but if you deliver it the right way, she'll listen. If you deliver it the wrong way, she will shut down. So let's go, let's go back to advice that was told to me, I don't know how many hundreds of times, from my parents, from my teachers, from my principals. It's not what you say, it's how, how you, you say, say it. Because I'm like, but this is all I said. And they're like, yeah, but that's not all you said. There was a lot of undertone there, buddy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you know, you could be a diplomat or a bureaucrat. You know, they say, always say, you know, a bureaucrat will tell you go to hell. A Democrat will tell you go to hell, but make you look forward to the trip. <laughs> I or like a diplomat. That. Yeah. Um, 
So I try to just be I, I'm careful how I word certain things. I'm always sure I'm always sure to get my point across, but I'm curious, I'm careful how I word it because I don't speak just for the sake of talking. I want to accomplish something when I finish that conversation because I put a price tag on my time, which is what I tell all entrepreneurs to do. Put a price. My time is my personal time is two thousand dollars an hour. So before I spend 15 minutes interacting with someone, I have to ask myself, is this worth five hundred dollars? I can't get back because I can lose money and make it back again. Time loss is gone forever. Ever. Yeah, I like that. So I'd put a, I put a price tag on it. So if I'm going to engage in someone where I'm spending 10, 15, 20, 30, an hour with someone or all day sometimes interacting with someone, I have to accomplish something at the yeah, end. I got to come away with, you know, either a better person or with something. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, at the end of the end of the day, that person I'm interacting with still feels exactly the same way they did. But other people have watched and they've seen how I interacted and they've heard those points and they may hit me up later on and go, man, you know, you gave me a different way of thinking about this. Someone else may chime in. Well, I don't agree with you on this and this, but I do agree on this and this. So I need to rethink this. Right. Sometimes the change isn't necessarily in the person you're talking to. It's in the change in the person that watches you yeah. speak. And, and like I said, sometimes that person might just need another eight years to, yeah. uh, to get to your truth. They do. Sometimes that's all they need. They, you know, time, time is a, an amazing ointment. But sometimes time can also, on the flip side, time be one of those things. If you just teach someone wrong and you just keep feeding them that wrong, 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 it just embeds it more and more. Like you said, not saying that you were raised wrong, but you said you were very conservative. You were That's how you were well, raised. That's what you thought. I, I, it's not that I was raised wrong. It was that I had values and beliefs. And not all of them. I mean, I had a lot of beautiful values and beliefs yeah. instilled in me. But I had certain values and beliefs instilled in me that were not uh, uh, authentic to to how I feel about the world, mm-hmm. and and it was a struggle to overcome those. That's kind of the way I look at it. Yeah, well, yeah, because you're you have your own truth. I love my mother dearly, but I see the world differently than she doesn't than on some things. I love my sister. I love my best friends, but we all see the world differently because we're the compilation of our experiences. Sure, you know. So my mom's truth is her truth. Mine is this now. Me and my mother can have a conversation. She she can have a belief about something. I say, Mom, that's not my experience. I understand how you done it, but this happened. This happened. This happened. This happened. She's like, really? I'm like, yeah. You know, she's like, wow. Okay. Well, you know, maybe it's not like they all the time. But if you only experience, if you've only had a McDonald's hamburger, <laughs> that's the only hamburger you've ever had, and you love them, that's the best hamburger in the world. Sure. Now, if now once you're introduced to Wendy's or Burger King or Fuddruckers or Red Robin or one of these places, daddies. Bad Daddies, <laughs> you know, these places, Five Guys, all of those places, which I've still never eaten a burger from Five Guys. I've never had one. They're pretty tasty. That's what I hear. But once you get, once you have all those different ones, now you can go, you may go, oh, this isn't as good as I thought it was. Or it's good for this purpose. I will still go to McDonald's sometimes because there's... It's good for my purpose. Right. It serves the need that I have at the uh, time. Exactly. This is the itch that I have, and I would like to scratch it with that burger. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, not. To, I don't want to hold you here all day because I will ramble all day if you let me. Oh, I, I got um, all day. <laughs> so you, you know, you just, you make this really uh, big decision, terrifying decision to jump into uh, this construction business on your own. Mm-hmm. How does that turn into making suits for people who are on? the red carpet at the Grammys? Again, just being at the right place at the right time. 
um, one of the guys we were building a house for, he's building a 15,000 square foot house. But I used to go, I used to wear suits a lot because I would go to a lot of meetings. And one day he stopped me and said, man, Will, you always dress so nice. Could you help me put my wardrobe together? And I said, look, I don't know anything about fashion. I don't know anything about all this other stuff. I said, I'm a Navy guy and I own a construction company. I can blow up stuff and I can build stuff. <laughs> and he said, basically short, you know, paraphrase. He basically said, William, I've seen you every day. I trust you. I trust what you wear. I trust you. Just help me out. So long story short, I helped him out. He liked what I did. And so he started telling his friends about me. So then they started calling me. So I started helping them out. Then it started being so time consuming that I started charging them. And then I said, you know, I'm t- I'm, these guys are already paying for me to tell them what to go get. If I can provide it for them, there may be a business in this. Now, I had no idea there are companies like Tom James and Astra and Black. And all, I had no idea. Right. You didn't know you were jumping in a market that's fiercely competitive already. No clue. I had the benefit of ignorance. I love it. And so in my mind, I was creating a whole new service category. And I was already friends with Mike Minner and Mike Rucker and Al Wallace and those guys. So I went to them and I said, if you can have your perfect clothing situation, what would it be? And they told me. So I kind of set my business up around that. And that's kind of how I built the framework of the business itself. And I started doing a lot of research. I, I'm a nerd. I, I, by, by nature, I'm a hardcore nerd. I love to learn things because I was a really small kid. You know, I grew four inches to 90 pounds after I turned like 25. So I was a really late bloomer. So I, my only chance in life was going to be intellect. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to get hot girls looking the way I look. Hey, know your strengths. Yeah, I needed to be smart so I could make good money, get that corporate job, and get women. <laughs> you know, that was a big part of my motivation. Well, I, yeah, so, I mean, to be fair, anybody who says that that isn't a good part of their motivation, I think is BSing you. Is that, yeah, especially as a teenager, you yeah. know, young 20-year-old. Well, and, and even as a 37-year-old that I am now, if I did not have my wife, I would be out there looking for her. Yeah. You know, I don't. I didn't need her to be happy, but I needed her to be as happy as I am right now. Mm, yeah, you, you know? know. So I don't know. People kind of, you know, you don't need a woman to be happy. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, so you know, that's kind of what I did. I just, I just, I just took a shot at it, and I just tried it. And Al Wallace was my first celebrity client. I was, I, bu- I built my whole company at Panera Bread and Valentine. I showed up every day, suit, tie, sitting at Panera Bread. Sometimes I would eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I would open that place up and close it down. Just clients? No, just building it. Though. Just building it. Researching it. I love that. Yeah, I would sit there all day long. I knew everybody. There was a group of us used to meet up. And one day, Al Wallace came in. He said, you know, what's going on? We're just talking. <clears throat> and I said, I'm starting this custom clothing company. He said, he said, I need a couple of sport coats. So he gave me a shot. I did a couple of sport coats for him. He loved them. He's been a customer ever since. And it just kind of, it just went from there. Where, not to sidetrack the story, but where did you find your affinity for being sharp dressed? Well, I've always liked to look, I always like to dress well because I like the way I feel. I like the way people look at me when I'm dressed well. Sure. In jeans and a t-shirt, I'm William. In a suit, I'm Mr. Wilson. And I'm from a small country town. Again, I was small in stature. I was skinny. No, I was I wasn't that guy that walked in and turned any kind of heads and got any kind of attention. I really could live in relative obscurity. The benefit I went to I was from a very very small town, so literally, all of us we went from kindergarten to high school, all in the same classes. There were forty one people in my graduating class in high school, and I didn't go to a private school. So, 
but I wasn't, I wasn't the guy that you walk, like girls never say, Ooh, I want to date William. Ooh, I want to take William. I was never that guy. Um, so, but my mom was always a neat dresser. Her jeans were always pressed. She always, she looked neat when she went out. So I just like to, so I've always been, I've always liked to dress well. I wasn't suit and tie all the time, but I always liked to make sure my clothes matched. They were clean. I looked presentable no matter where I went. And I just, I just like the way I feel. I like the way I, way I feel in a suit. Like sure. I just feel a le- different confidence in a suit. Oh, absolutely. I feel like Superman when I put a suit on. <laughs> I love that. So, you know, you had your kind of one client who had who was a celebrity. Mm-hmm. Did you intentionally foster relationships with that community? Like, how did that develop? Because now that's kind of one of the things you're known for is dressing people who are out to be photographed. Mm-hmm. Well, you meet and uh, networking. Typically, you know, networking is basically meeting the friends of your friends. If you play in the NFL, you probably have a lot of NFL friends. If you're in Hollywood, you probably have Hollywood friends. If you work in law, you probably have law friends. So you just you meet the friends of your friends. And all when I network, I don't network just to sell clothes. My clients, we know each other. We text each other. We go play golf together. So I get to know their friends. Celebrities have never been my target market. They're not my target market now. Fair enough. And because I've always said I'd rather have the person that works at Bank of America Corporate Center than Bank of America Stadium. Because that guy that's playing at Bank of America Stadium, he may buy a couple of suits, maybe three or four suits, and had those same two or three suits for years. The guy at Bank of America Corporate Center, he's wearing suits every day. The people he works with buy suits every day. He's got to buy suits. I just had to give him a reason to get them from me and keep coming from me. Right. So that's how that works. Uh, I mean, do you feel like that brings you a certain credibility with the bankers at Bank of America, when they see like, oh, you're putting a suit on, uh, you know, D.L. Hughley, you're putting a, a suit on, you know, an NFL player, they kind of see that. I mean, mm-hmm. that has to give them, because to me, I, I see it and they're like, well, if, if someone like that trusts him, he must be putting good threads together. Absolutely. That's that's where the benefit is. It gives you, it gives people confidence in your brand, integrity for the brand. And it justifies your pricing. If I had, I, I try to price fairly. But if I had, if my prices were twice as high, it would still be justified because of my customer base. Right. But that's what it does. It gives you integrity and gives people the ability to trust your brand. Because like you said, if I can do a suit for D.L. Hughley, I can do a suit for this guy. If I can do a suit for this CEO, I can do a suit for this middle-level manager. Right. I can wear the suits that they're wearing. Mm-hmm. I for, like that. And for some of my guys, and that was a big lesson I learned because I started, you know, the business started growing. I started getting some pub, started getting some magazine articles and stuff. I said, okay, now it's time to take it off of me and put it onto the clothes. So, and I was still kind of new, so I didn't have this big budget. But what I did, I had went, I had twelve, I spent twelve hundred dollars on this website. Which, in retrospect, I'm like, man, that was crazy because I had to save up a long time. I had to miss some. I ate a lot of ramen noodles to, oh, yeah. to offset the, I feel you. that. Um, that $1,200. But Bentley had a really cool website. We basically mimicked that website. I, had a, I got a photographer to come in and take you know, professional product shots. Launched a website. Had these little spinny, slidey things. It was a really neat website. And we launched the site. And I sent out to my people, let them know. I only, I only had maybe 20 or 30 customers then. And I said, no, t- no look, let me know what you think of the site. And all of them said, man, the site looks great. It's beautiful. But if I wasn't already working with you, there's nothing about this website to make me want to work with you. Hmm. Now, you want to talk about 
a kick in the balls. Like, you just ate ramen noodles to create this thing. You're telling yeah. me it's not good? Yeah, I'm like, you know how much I've been on the struggle for this? One minute you tell me how wonderful, how beautiful, and it looks like something that Neiman Marcus, looks like a brand I've seen at Neiman Marcus, but you wouldn't buy from me if you weren't already buying. I said, so I called a couple of them. And I said, but you just said it looks like something you see with Neiman Marcus. He said, yeah. If I wanted something that looked like it came from Neiman Marcus, I would just go to Neiman Marcus. One of my customers said, William, I could fly to London to buy a pair of socks if I want to. I don't, he said, your clothes are great. If your clothes weren't great, I wouldn't buy, I wouldn't wear them. And I wouldn't buy from you, continue to buy from you. But I buy from you because I like opening up a magazine and seeing your picture. I like when I'm in the gym and I see somebody on ESPN and I say, me and him have the same tailor. Or I like when I hear someone say, this person's coming to town and those kind of things. I like that. I said, you give a value. All my friends wear custom, but I'll say to them, you know, hey, my, that's one of my guys. Me and that guy, that suit, I got the same suit out of that same fabric in my closet. What's your guy do? What's your tailor? Who's your tailor? Right. It, I didn't realize that value that it brought to them. So that's where it helps. Now, there's good and bad. In, every, in everything in life, there's a good and a bad. Everything ends up being a yin and yang. The downside of that is the average person, because they see so much celebrity stuff I do, they automatically assume they can't afford my suit. Right. I hear that, too. Like, they're like, well, if you're buying from him, he's probably not going to sell anything I can afford to buy. I hear that. Yeah, you know, and that's that's been my biggest... So how do you combat that? Like, what is your... When you sit down and think, what is the one thing I can do to show them that they probably can? Like, what what's the angle? Um, I try to just do stuff like... Because I, re- I don't really advertise in general. Right. You know, and I don't want to water down the brand of the quality of what, what I do. So that's, that's even to this day, it's still something I kind of struggle working with. Because I can't tell me guys have come up to me with this $1,200 suit they bought at Nordstrom's. And they go, oh, what do you think? I'm like, I could have made you that suit for 800 bucks. That's what I think. I'm like, I need to get you in the shop and tighten this thing up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, dude, you spent $1,200 there. Then they had to alter it. And it's still a ready-made suit. And I tell everyone, I, I never I never dog a man for his work operating in his budget. When I first started my clothing company, I couldn't afford custom suits. So, look, if that's not in your budget... Buy a nice ready-made suit and then go have it tailored to the max it can be tailored. It's going to cost you another couple hundred bucks probably. But when you walk out, you're going to feel really good. You're going to look good in it. Right. But it's still not going to look the same way it would look if it were made custom. So I tell them, I could have made this for you for this. So what I try to do is just, you know, if I have specials or I have deals, things like this, I try to put, you know, put online those types of things, because that has been my biggest struggle. I can't tell you how many of my friends have spent thousands of dollars on suits they could have spent for hundreds for. Right. <laughs> you know? right. So, but that's really my big thing. Gotcha. So I know a lot of people I talk to, and a lot of listeners that have uh, reached out to me are in jobs they don't really necessarily like. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't really know what to do. The um, you know, question they frequently ask themselves is like, I don't really know what else I would do if I wasn't doing this. What advice do you give someone who is considering jumping into just kind of this unproven market for them? You know, you were a guy who had no experience making clothing, right. from what it sounds like. Right. And someone was like, hey, help me put on some clothes. And, and obviously, at a certain point, you were like, I think I can turn this into a business. What, do you, what advice do you give someone who's looking to make that jump who, into a new industry? Um, don't jump blind. I may have been jumping into a new industry, but I knew suits. And for me, my passion is business. I love doing business. So whether I was 
Like I really, the odd thing is, I'm more of a watch enthusiast than I am a suit enthusiast. Always have been. So I would get very excited talking about watches and I get moderately excited talking about suits. You can name 50 designers and I'd have no idea who they were. I used to stay in my lane. I do what I do and I don't worry about everything else. But I still got into an industry that I understood and I love doing business. Don't get into a, don't, don't, don't get into a business that you don't understand and get to know, know, what, know what things you like doing. Because entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs have done the average person a disservice because they act like they're superheroes. They act like they never lose. They never fail. They wake up and everything they touch turns to platinum. And every time they sell a suit or they sell whatever their product is to every single person that they meet. And that's just not the way. There are days you want to pull your hair out. And that's one of the things I like to do with this show. That's really one of my goals is to break down how that it's not like that. You know, the struggles that we go through, the, the, you know, when you said it was terrifying, that's what I want to resonate with people. You're not alone. Like we're not people who decide to do this aren't special. You know, I spent the last two years of my life like worrying that the thing I'm trying to do mm-hmm. isn't going to work out every mm-hmm. day. Some days I'm like, oh, I got this. And some days I'm like, shit, yeah. I have made a huge mistake. At least three days a week, I tell myself, screw this, I'm going to go get a job. You're still there. Yeah, and I will always be there. And I get nervous every time I try a new venture. Like I told you, I'm meeting Kathy Ireland and her people this afternoon. Oh, that's exciting. So I'm amazed <laughs> when this people out of the blue... When Wyclef came to town, he hit me up. He started following me on Instagram, and he hit me up. So I'm meeting these amazing people. But still, every time you get ready to do something new or you get ready to try a new project, if you're not nervous, that means you don't care. Yeah, yeah, you don't have anything to lose if you're not concerned. Yeah, you're not taking a risk. You're just doing something. You're treating it like a hobby. You know, I, Eddie Griffin's been one of my clients for a few years now. He says every time he gets, still gets nervous Every time before he goes on stage, I like that. Every single time, and, I, and and that resonates with me because you know before I stand up and I speak to the court, every time I'm still nervous. You know, I know what I'm doing, I know what I'm talking about, and I know I'm going to be fine. But at the same time, still nervous every time. Yeah, my acting coach was saying that Catherine Hepburn, you know, four-time Academy Award winner, you know, world-renowned, says she still got nervous. Every time she got ready to go on the stage, that she would get nervous to the point she would throw up. Oh wow, that's intense. Yeah, because I got to a point where I, I mentally thought about it a lot. How? Because I couldn't stop being nervous. It didn't matter. I was always nervous. I'd always have these butterflies. But I figured out a way to like change that trigger to where I would start to feel nervous, and then I would start to think about how prepared I was and how well it was going to go. Mm-hmm. So I would use that nervousness as a trigger to pump me up. To get excited, mm-hmm. and, and that was that worked out very well for me because I'm I'm still going to get nervous every single time, mm-hmm. and but I've been able to kind of flip the script on that nervousness instead of making me go start stuttering and messing up, is I remember how prepared I am. I mean, I think that's the key. If I'm nervous and not prepared, I'm still screwed. Exactly. But uh, but yeah, that was that was one of the ways I used it. I'd, I'd read a book. I don't even remember what book it was, and it kind of gave me that idea. And I was like, I'm going to try that. Yeah, but it, but it makes sense. You know, the more prepared you are for something, the less nervous you are about it. To just there'll still be that point. And I've spoken in front of thousands of people over the course of my career, and I walk on a stage. Now I have a bad bad habit of giving speeches without writing them. I'll try to write a speech. I just, I'm just not that guy. Yeah. I just walk on stage and I just start talking. I'm like, what do you want me to talk about? And I just start talking. That's strong. And see where it goes. 
Exactly. And I'll finish up. He'll be like, oh, that was great. And I will have no idea what I just said. And, I need, <laughs> and I'm like, Does it, did anybody record this so I can go back later and listen to it? But I just think, but I'm still, I don't really get nervous until I get nervous at the same point every time. It's like, like that five seconds before they say my name until the first word comes out of my mouth. When I talk to the crew. Absolutely. It's exactly the same for me. It's like right there at go time. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, once once I am, you know, 30 seconds in, I'm on autopilot. I'm good. Oh, yeah. When I, when I say hello or how you doing or whatever, they get the response. That's like, okay. Because now I feel like, because I'm never talking to an audience. No matter how many people in the room, I'm never talking to an audience. In my mind, I'm talking to somebody. Even if I don't look in the, if I'm looking at the whole crowd as a whole, the person I'm talking to in my head may not even be in that room. Yeah. That's, that's gets me started. I'm talking to somebody I'm envisioned in my head that I'm speaking to. And that's exactly how I started getting, you know, more comfortable with podcasting. I'd sit down in front of, when you sit down in front of a microphone in a room by yourself, it is a lonely place and, mm-hmm. and you're trying to say all these things and you get, you start thinking like, who the, what am I talking about? Who wants to listen? Mm-hmm. And, and what helped me was defining that one person. I, I kind of made an, made this person up in my mind. Like this is who they are. This is what their name is. And so when I would sit down to, to tell my story or talk about something I thought was important, I was talking to them mm-hmm. and that really helped me connect by you know by doing that same thing that you're kind of doing you're talking to one person you're not talking to this like you know amorphous blob of people yep and that person you know there's a lot to be said about having imaginary friends you know because to that person is always receptive to what you're saying yeah they they're listening they're they're attentive and you feel like you're mentoring or you're talking to that person so then that just puts you at a certain ease your cadence is better the anxiety is gone and then you look around, and the people are hanging on your every word, too, the same way that person was. Yeah. But what I find that I do, and I find that most people don't do this, if I'm supposed to speak for an hour, I'll probably speak 10, 15 minutes. And then I'll open the floor for questions. Because I would much rather answer your question than just tell you what I think yeah, you like, want to What did know. you come here to find out? Yeah, exactly. I like that. Yeah, because I have a better chance. I could talk to you. We could speak on entrepreneurship. I could talk to you from now to this time next week and never entrepreneurship is such a broad spectrum topic. I could speak for a week nonstop 24 seven and never come close to the topic, the subject you had, the question that you had. Right. It's just that it's like, I'm going to talk to you about medicine. <laughs> Your question may be, where did the tongue depressors come from? <laughs> but I can go to you from Socrates all the way to the Hippocratic oath, but never tell you where a tongue depressor came from. Right. And that may be your medical question. I like that. How do you sterilize tongue depressors? How do you not get spun? You know, it may be some random question like this that a kid may have. And even if I'm talking on the same subject, a kid that goes to West Charlotte may have a different question than the kid that goes to Marvin Ridge than the kid that goes to Cannon School. Right. That's That was some heavy stuff. I enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Um I do a lot of public speaking too, so I always like to hear how other people approach approach it. Because um, I'm always trying to, I'm ruthless about trying to make myself a better public speaker because it is hard. It's one of the most nerve wracking things you can do is that few seconds when you're about to have to be in front of a room of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like to hear how other people kind of approach it as well. Um, I like taking questions too, though, because then it becomes a conversation. Mm-hmm. You're not there just like 
projecting at them. Exactly. It's like, like here, let me give you all my wisdom and knowledge that I've learned over the years. <laughs> let me make your life better with what I know. Cascaded upon you. Yeah, this is what you need to know because I deem it so. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, so before I let you go, I want to back up just a little bit. One of the things I like to talk about a lot is you know, habits and routines. And earlier we were discussing how people feel like, well, people that actually go out and start their own companies, they're different. There's something special about them. And I don't think that's true at all. And one of the things that I found when I really started getting entrepreneurship and studying entrepreneurs and talking to entrepreneurs is it's not really about one thing about them. It's not about one thing they did. It's about the little things that they do every single day. Mm -hmm. It's the different choices that they make day to day that get them next year to somewhere that you're not. If you choose on a Saturday morning to get up and watch Netflix for three hours, or if you choose to get up and maybe start, you know, typing pages towards a book that you maybe wanted to write, mm-hmm. at the end of a year, you might have 400 pages. And the person who said, ah, I'm just not ready to start yet has nothing. So what are there any habits and routines in your day-to-day life that you credit with your ability to be successful? Um, I don't know if I necessarily have a, a habit, like a day-to-day habit. I think it's just a philosophy I have in life is – Start with the understanding that failure is inevitable, but not catastrophic failure. No matter, it's like hitting golf balls. You can go to the range and you can hit, you can be hitting great shots all day. You hit, you swing that club enough times, you are going to hit a bad shot. But just because you hit a bad shot doesn't mean every shot you ever hit for the rest of your life is going to be bad. If you go out to the range and your first shot is bad, doesn't mean every shot is going to be bad. You just keep going, just keep working your process. But I just think you just try something, say, okay, if you, if you see something starting to fail, first start slow. Start slow, but start. You know, as a child, you know, first you learn how to just sit up. Most of us get stuck just trying to learn how to sit up. My, my daughter is right there. She just sat up for the first time like this week. Mm-hmm. So you got to sit up. First, you got well, to be to hold her head up. Yeah. You got to sit up. Well, and for months, it was just ugh, like doing her crunches, but just could never quite make it. Yeah. <laughs> but eventually she got there because she kept going. Had she given up, she'd have never got she to kept that doing point. her crunches every day. Yeah. So then you get you get up, then you stand up. And when you stand up, you gonna, you may take a step, then you fall. Then you take two steps and fall. Then eventually you walk across the room, then you're running, then you're setting track records. (laughs) But no matter who you are, that process all started from the same place. So whether you're going to do clothes, do a podcast, become a neurosurgeon, want to be a NASCAR driver. The best NASCAR drivers in the world still wreck cars. Yeah. You know, but again, entrepreneurs have told people, all I do is win. I ain't got time for this. No, my my mind and my money, all the other nonsense to make great bumper stickers and rap hooks, but they're not realistic in life. I fail a lot because I try a lot of things. I succeed a lot because I try a lot of things. I succeed. I succeed less than I fail, but my successes are greater than my failures. But I just I keep trying. Sometimes I've always said you can date your idea, but you can't marry it. (laughs) I like that. Because, Always be ready to pivot on it. Yeah, you have to, you know, because things are going to change. You start off knowing this much, you know, you know, a, a, a dime size worth of information. A year from now, you know, a bathtub worth of information. 
Next year, you know, a, a room full of information. Then you, eventually, you have a house full, a whole neighborhood full of information. Right. And that's the good thing about knowing the information is no matter where you go, it goes with you. Exactly. I tell people, climb your mental tree. When you're on the ground, you only see what's right in front of you. Once you start climbing a tree, the higher you climb, the more your neighborhood you see. Then once you get to the top of that tree, you see, you see your entire neighborhood. But more importantly, now you know you can climb a tree. So once you climb that tree, next climb the mountain. Because once you get started going up that, that well, climb a hill, then climb a mountain. Because the top of the hill, you see over the trees you saw. And the more you see, the better. You may think you want to go over here, but then you see more. Go, no, I really want to go over here. But if you'd have never climbed that hill, you'd have never saw the place over here. You'd have never known there was more out there. Right. But you'd have never climbed the hill if you didn't climb the tree. Right. The tree was already in your yard. You ain't got to leave your yard to climb the tree. Yeah. So what he's saying is start. It doesn't matter where you start, where you're going. Just start. Do something. Do anything. Right. Just Climb up the tree. Yeah. If you have an idea, start with it. Accept your lumps. Take your punches. Nice. You know, you may have to. Now, there have been times that I've started something, say, you know what? This isn't either the right time, or I don't have the skill set, or it's just really not what I thought it would be, and I stopped doing it. You're a fool to keep doing something once you know it's not working. If you thought you were jumping in a pool, you realize you jumped in the sewage, are you going to just keep swimming just because you're already there? Yeah, don't keep throwing good money after bad. Yeah, sometimes you got to go, you know, I'm not buying Enron stock tomorrow. Yeah, (laughs) Cut your losses. Yeah, but sometimes people, they go, well, I'm so into it now. Like, no. Sunk cost. Yeah, Absolutely. Just, now you, no, you're just throwing money away. And that was a hard part for me. I mean, you know, making that shift from a lawyer. I want to be a lawyer for decades. And then I spent all those years of school doing it and all that money and spent six years practicing. You know, that was the same problem I had, sunk cost. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was hard to overcome. But at the same time, sometimes the cost is just sunk and you got to pivot and move. Yeah. Because so. money, money can never be your motivator for being happy in life. Well, I mean, you're just never going to actually get happiness with it Mm-mm. you know it, you'll get comfort but you know once you've got enough that you're comfortable because what's the number seventy thousand? there was a study on happiness levels and i think that it came out around once you hit seventy thousand as a united states citizen with what we need to survive here mm-hmm. at that point it stops affecting your happiness at all because you have at that point fulfilled all of your basic needs mm-hmm. you you have a car you have a house you know money you know gives you food shelter all those things and at that point, once you have all those things, now you're, now you're not going to be affected by that increase. Yeah. I tell people all the time, money, money, you can only get two things with money, stuff and fake friends. Yeah, I hear that. Well, I'm going to let you get out of here. I know how busy you are. Thank you for over $2,000 worth of your time right here. <laughs> I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Um, but before I let you go, where can the listeners find you? Uh, my website is williamwilsonclothing.com. But... Easy to find me just on my social media. My Instagram, Twitter is at the Clothier, T H E C L O T H I E R. All right, perfect. Well, thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. All right, friends. I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode as much as I did recording it. Now, if you enjoyed the show, I'm going to ask you to do me one small favor. Take out your phone and go over to the iTunes store or whatever app that you listen to the podcast on and drop a five-star rating on the show. Give us a review. That is how we keep spreading the word and bringing you killer content every week. Again, I want to give you one more reminder about the four-week 
podcasting course at Advent Coworking starting in January. Idea to iTunes. In just four short weeks, we're going to take that idea that you have about your podcast, and we are going to get you on the path to have that on iTunes, your own show, in four weeks. So go to yourpod.pro for information to sign up. All right, listeners, thank you for joining me this week. I sincerely appreciate you spending a little bit of that valuable time with me. Until next week, get out there and get after it.